Chili Gonzalez is one of the few musicians around who can claim to have crowd-surfed with the BBC Symphony, rapped, challenged pianists to public piano battles and beaten them, and set a Guinness World Record for the longest concert by a solo artist. He also writes lush, playful piano pieces that some critics have compared to the music of Satie. He's currently in New York to perform at the Atrium at Lincoln Center and give a WQXR Cafe concert, too. You've cited influences of Satie, which the critics have mentioned, and Berlioz and Franck in your solo piano piano pieces. Um, What's the affinity you have with the French composers? Does it come from your French-Canadian roots or from somewhere else? Well, you know, I've stolen a lot of harmonic color from French composers. I, I, I haven't gone that deeply into being influenced by classical composers because I consider myself a pop musician. You know, I believe that for those colors to be effective for, for uh, the modern day, you, you know, you, you have to turn it into, into pop music. You know, we're not, we're not in, the, in the 19th century anymore. We're in the 21st. For me, for example, you know, the obsession with, with structure that was you know, a huge thing with uh, classical composers, that's not really an issue for me. That, that's, that's kind of a case-closed pop music kind of won that battle for me. I grew up watching MTV. I think there's nothing wrong with verse-chorus, verse-chorus, verse-chorus. That's, that's the currency of, of our generation these days. So I'm kind of just bringing in a few of the colors of classical music, the harmonies especially, because it's very powerful stuff. It can really make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up involuntarily. Um, and it, there's kind of a niche for me there. Harmony is, is, is not uh, trod upon that much these days in modern-day pop music. You know, we have a lot of melody, a lot of rhythm, a lot of timbre in, in modern-day pop music. Not a lot of harmony. Harmony is the one piece of the musical puzzle where you can't just happen upon it instinctively. You really have to study it to deploy it properly. And that's kind of become my superpower, if you will. You know, the few times I've gotten to work with some very high-level artists that I admire very much, such as the rapper Drake or the, the French duo Daft Punk. When I go into the studio with them, I can sense that what they want from me is harmony. You know, they start talking about chord progressions, and I want some chords like this, and I kind of realize that's really my, my leg up, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, the French composers, they, they had a high premium on harmony. I think that's why I'm attracted to them. Everything from 1850 till about 1920 is a thin slice, but it's a very important slice. Indeed, indeed. The cafe concert that you just did here at WQXR, I was struck. First of all, I can't, so were the keys. <laughs> I can't remember the last time that I saw a pianist take the music stand off an upright and play it open like that before seeing you do that. That was one thing. The second thing is you're a tall guy and a, a large frame guy. I haven't seen an upright piano look that small before. And I thought, no, this is a regular 88 key piano. I thought, do we have a five and a half? rehearsal piano, five and a half octave rehearsal piano. No, it's a regular 88 key piano. And you used darn near every single key on it. Do you ever wish the piano were, I don't know, octave or two bigger on either side? Uh, well, you know, there are there are those those Bosendorfer pianos that add a little octave on the bottom. But, you know, I, I like the constraint. You know, I like use the upright on my album. I tend to use a grand in concert because I'm also doing material from uh, my orchestral rap stuff and some... Uh, sort of versions of songs that were electronic collaborations that I do in solo versions. And so I, I need the range that a grand uh, can give me in a concert so I can go from a whisper to a, a Wagnerian scream, so to speak. <laughs> when it comes to make my solo piano albums, they're done on my personal upright, which is a Bechstein upright. And that, I think, is important to have that constraint and, and have that, that feeling that, you know, when people hear an upright piano, it reminds them of pianos they heard in, in their homes. It reminds them of pianos they heard in their favorite bar, 
the grand piano, of course, will always make them think of, of the more condescending aspects of the classical repertoire, etc. So you're looking for accessibility is what you're looking for and connection. Yeah, and, and extreme intimacy. And, and the upright, um, it really gives you that because an upright is, is always struggling to, uh, to be heard in a way. And uh, there's something very touching about, you know, the piano is a weak instrument anyway. You know, when you strike a piano key, if you hit just one key, nothing happens. You can't shape the sound as a violin. I, I can't make you cry with a single note. If I hit a note, it's the same whether a chimpanzee hits it or I hit it, you know. The piano, it's always struggling. It's always struggling. It's creating the illusion of expression. And, you know, they say that certain pianists can make the piano sing, but, but they can't. It's the struggle to make it sing that I think has attracted people to it. it it's convenient because it can play harmony, rhythm, a melody all at the same time. But it is a weak instrument, and the upright is even weaker. And so it's really like seeing a little foundling try to find its way in the world. You know, something incredibly touching about playing an old, beat-up Yamaha U3 like I just did in the cafe. I prefer that to having the most perfect Steinway in the world uh, waiting for me. I was going to say, the piano, we don't usually offer it to artists without it being tuned. And it was pretty out of tune, and I was wondering, you've answered my question already, but I was struck by whether or not you had to make friends with that out-of-tune sound in order to do what you did, but you were friends with it already. Well, sure. I mean, I, I, I luckily have a lot of experience playing pianos, you know, uh, doing all these different sessions and some, some hundreds, some odd concerts a year. So you, you get quickly to, to find the soul of each piano, and once in a while you really you can't figure certain, certain women out and you can't figure certain <laughs> piano, uh, pianos out either, you know. Um, so, you, you know, you, you do your best. You do your best, and uh, in this case... I managed to, you know, flirt a little bit, make a few jokes, and uh, and then had her laughing pretty quickly. That was that was well. It was a fabulous performance. You were classically trained at McGill University, and you clearly have that vocabulary um, in your playing and in the way you talk about music. Is your music a reaction to the conventions of classical music and jazz, or is it your own, in spite of those things, or with them and through them? Well, it's it's. I suppose it's pointing out the difference between what I consider to be the musical meaning of our musical history and separating that from the institutions that have come up around it. I was traumatized by the institutions, but fell in love with the meaning of the music. And for me, there was so little of the meaning preserved in the institution that I'm perhaps going with the meaning of the music, trying to adapt certain elements of it that I think can really speak to modern-day generation of listeners, at the same time trying to avoid the traps that uh, I saw many of my colleagues fall into when I spent my time in that institution. So the institution repelled me, but the music attracted me. You've pioneered your own form of orchestral rap, which sounds like a little bit of a contradiction in terms. Is it? Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. I think if you listen to you know Rick Ross or Lil Wayne these days, you'll hear a lot of bombast and what the Germans called Sturm und Drang, storm and stress in the music it's very frontal it's you know a lot of orchestral sounds are in that music Kanye West's last album had quite a bit of orchestra uh, a lot of time it synthesized mind you but still the idea that the orchestra brings that power has never gone from our music I mean look at the look at the great Bollywood string sample in the Britney Spears song Toxic and how effective that was and how people loved it and they knew what that meant uh, when they heard that uh, screeching violin uh, figure in that song. So I think the orchestra has never gone away, uh, just as the piano has never really gone away. It dominated so much of Western music, I don't think it will ever go away. And for me to use the orchestra with no beats and to rap on it 
was not a statement about where rap should go or where orchestral music should go. It, it, it was a way of saying, I love rap so much, I want to find a way to do it that is honest for my capabilities and for my background as a trained musician, as a musical genius. Um, that was a way of, of saying, I'm a musical genius, but a rap amateur. In 2009, in Paris, you set a world record for a solo piano performance of 27 hours and 3 minutes and 44 seconds. Were you thinking in any way of some of the great things that classical artists did when, when composer-performers like Liszt were more showmen and recitals? Were you thinking of that, or was it another purpose entirely? Well, I've always tended towards focusing on the, the noble profession of being a showman. To me, being an entertainer, which is what I prefer to call myself rather than an artist, it's a way of saying, you know, entertainment doesn't have to mean pandering to the lowest common denominator. To me, entertainment just means being very conscious of audience perception. It doesn't mean give the people what they want cynically. It means show them something they didn't even know they wanted in the Steve Jobs sense of trying to be ahead of them. Uh, and I think that's what someone like List would have done. I'm always attracted to, you know, Prokofiev, Tchaikovsky. My favorite composers tend to be ones who were conscious of the audience and, for better or for worse, had personalities that meant that they needed some sort of approval of the audience, but on their own terms. The truly mercurial artists who just didn't give a rat's ass about what people thought about them, I can't get into their music, to be honest. Um, I need that connection to the audience and that in a way, enslavement to the um, perception of the audience. On the other hand, that was also a way of getting away from album making and the idea that the album is on top of the pyramid of what we do. And it was extreme spectacle. Um, we weren't selling an album. We were selling the idea of, of me as a musical genius and what I'm capable of doing. Um, and it was a way of, at a time when I felt I was miscommunicating my goals to sort of center it on, on the essentials um, of what I was doing. And I don't think I could do it today because I feel much more like my expectations are in line with the results I'm getting. And I don't have the same frustration that would lead me to do something like that. You know, it, it, it's a matter of ego to get you through something as traumatic as 27 hours um, straight. What was uh, the hardest thing about that? Maintaining the quality. I mean, the quantity I knew would not be a problem. It's, it's not like you can actually fall asleep while playing the piano or something. It wasn't a question of being too tired. It's a question of delivering the quality of performance that I'm used to giving over a two-hour concert over, over 27. And moments of struggle, moments of almost falling into a pit of repetition and irrelevance and not knowing what I was doing and fighting back against that as much as possible so that I was always putting myself in a new dangerous position letting the adrenaline flow to keep me not only awake, but communicating with the audience at all times. So a typical two-hour concert that you do is a piece of cake. No. I mean, just now I played, uh, what, 10 minutes in the, in the cafe, and that's its own challenge to, in 10 minutes, try to tell a bit of a story that'll, that'll appeal to people in 10 minutes, because uh, in that case, I would say, well, in two hours, I have the luxury of the two hours to gradually show different sides of myself. Here, I have to kind of compress it in there, I think to play the shortest concert uh, in the world for a Guinness World Record would be almost as difficult as playing the longest because um, it's a way of telling a story. I mean, I suppose that's more of a, a Twitter generation challenge just to cram a lot into very little. But um, playing a long time was a throwback, definitely. You mentioned Steve Jobs a minute ago, and your piece never stopped. Is it a piece, a work? What do you call it? Is it a song? What do you write? Oh, I write songs. Absolutely. It's a song? Yeah, okay. yeah. Sure, All right. sure. So your song, Never Stop, was on the first commercial for the iPad in 2010. Are you okay with having your music used in commercials? I mean, it clearly has some 
remunerative benefits, but do you have any artistic agony over, oh, I'm being exploited or, oh, my work is being used in a different way? Absolutely not. No, that, that's, that's kind of a 90s mindset, I think, that mostly <laughs> has gone away. Um, you know, most musicians these days realize um, with the implosion of a certain part of the music business that was the record business, um, you have to look elsewhere to, to continue. And I think especially the fans are much more forgiving than they would have been uh, back in the 90s because they want the artists they love to be able to continue. And if people want me to do crazy things like make my own movies and um, employ orchestras and... and uh, and be as ambitious as possible. Um, they should be happy. Uh, are there any ads you wouldn't do then? Well, sure. If there's ethical problems with the companies that are so glaring that I can't ignore them, then you, you have to consider. I, I'm not sure I would uh, want my music used for certain extreme right-wing causes, for example, sure. uh, that denigrate people. And um, I wouldn't let my music be used in a Chick-fil-A commercial, for example, right. because you I don't believe in their politics. But other than that... Um, fair game. Well, if you look at the ma major record companies, anyone who signs a record contract, I happen to be uh, an in independent label owner and put up my own music. But when I was signed to companies, you know, you can be quite shocked if you really trace who owns EMI, you're going to find some arms dealers in there somewhere. Right. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, that's what happens when you dig into things. When you dig sure. in, exactly. Sure. If, you, if you really want to say, okay, you know, I draw the line at Chick-fil-A. Well, that's a bit hypocritical because if you go to, you know, if you look at Apple, and uh, their business practices in China, I could have also said, I'm going to draw the line there. Right. Uh, I took Apple's money and hopefully using it for a good cause to entertain people. Uh, did you struggle to find, to find yourself? You have such a unique style, and you have come through a couple of, a couple of conventional places. You understand, you understand the structure of jazz and the uses of jazz. You understand the structure and the uses and the history of classical music. I wonder what might have pushed you in one or other direction to fit more easily into a category because you don't fit into very many categories. And how did it, what did it take to get you to find out who you are as a musician, a performer, entertainer, showman, all those things? And what did it cost you? Well, it has to do with uh, you know, how you're brought up and, and, uh, and the personality you have. And I have, um, you know, I have an oppositional personality, I suppose, that likes to... Uh, surprise people, and uh, I generally find that I need to have an approval of an audience, but on my own terms. It's not enough for me to play into traditional expectations of how to please people. Um, so I always need to be shaping and and redefining that that relationship. Probably because I'm I have some discomfort maybe with the idea that I need the audience, so I'm constantly pushing them away and. And, uh, and drawing and, them back and in drawing too. them back in at the same time <laughs> simultaneously, and you know that's a cycle of transgression and redemption that uh, a, a lot of people who um, choose the iconoclastic route uh, have to deal with, and that means once in a while people showing up to my concerts, they love my piano album, and all of a sudden I'm rapping and being a bit vulgar in my humor, and it really shocks them, and they feel somewhat betrayed by their initial expectation, and. Um, but that's not a good enough reason for me to shave off the rough edges. And in general, I always felt that um, it's it's a long route, but it's been slowly and surely building up. My audience has grown ever so slightly since I started about 12 years ago. And um, to me, it's always been a marathon and not a sprint. And so uh, uh, to do things 
in the short term to expedite the ease with which people can understand me has just never really been an option. It's just something to do with my with my personality. I don't particularly recommend it to anyone else. <laughs> Chili Gonzalez, self-realized guy, self-realized musician. Pleasure to hear you play and hear you speak. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.